Father in heaven, oh, Father, you're so wonderful to us. You are our heavenly Father, and you've invited us to call you by that name. In fact, Lord, in Scripture, you even encourage us to call you by the name Abba, which is even a closer and more endeared term. You've portrayed yourself as such a wonderful, loving Father in, throughout Scripture, and I pray this morning that your Spirit would be present to help us to understand what that means to us here today. Father, in the words of Moses, show us your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start today in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 is where we as Seventh-day Adventists see our marching orders, as it were. Revelation 14. And you probably don't even need to turn there to know what it's talking about. In fact, you shouldn't. Revelation 14 and verse 6, the Bible says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, I'm not going to read through all three messages, but if you jump ahead to verse 14, just following the message is given a little earlier. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and one, I'm sorry, on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp what? Sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now this picture is Jesus sitting on the cloud coming back to reap the harvest of the earth. This is the coming of Christ. Now the reason I bring that up is when you go to Matthew 24 and you're looking at the signs of Jesus coming, Jesus says in Matthew 24, and you've heard me say this before, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness unto all the nations and then the end will come. Now we come to Revelation and we see the gospel being preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, nation, tribe, tongue, and people, all the world, as a witness to all the nations. And right after, what happens? The end is coming. In other words, what Jesus foretells in Matthew 24, we see here in Revelation, this gospel message that goes at the end of time. And the Bible calls it the everlasting gospel. You know what that tells us? And don't miss this. It tells us that there's only, only one way that anybody has ever been saved. Now, you may say, of course, that's, yeah, but you'd be surprised maybe to find out that there are people today in the Christian church who believe that God saves different people different ways. There are those who believe that the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by their commandment keeping and that they still have to keep the law, but in the New Testament, we don't keep the law, we believe in Jesus. And so there's a difference in how people are saved. That's not scriptural. The Bible says it's an everlasting gospel, and if you go with me to the book of Acts chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter 4. Look at verse... We probably should start in verse 10. Peter, the apostle, is speaking. And he says in verse 10, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified 
whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there what? Salvation in any other. For there is, how many names? No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One gospel through Jesus Christ all the time. It's always ever been through Christ. You following that? So the Bible gives the everlasting gospel. And in that context, it says to fear God and give glory to him. Now, a lot of times when we think of glory, we think of a dazzling brightness. Some of you who have done a little study on this word in Scripture realize that the Bible often employs the word glory to talk of what? Character. And I want to show you a place in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Now this is what I referred to actually in my prayer. Exodus 33, verse 17. Exodus 33, verse 17. The Bible says, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing, that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said to him, please show me what? Your glory. Now notice how God responds. Then he, God said, I will make all my glory, all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim what? The name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now we fast forward a little bit to this actual event where God shows Moses his glory. And the Bible says in 34 verse 5, just go one chapter forward, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the what? The name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty. What what is he describing? What about himself? His attributes, right? His character. In other words, when God proclaims his name, isn't that what Moses said? Hey, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. I'll proclaim my name. Those are all synonymous in the usage here. In other words, God is showing the goodness his goodness, his character to Moses. And in the context of Revelation, when that gospel message is going and it says, fear God and give him glory, it's highlighting God's character, God's goodness. And a core of the gospel message is the goodness of God. Now, I want to talk about that goodness of God, that character of God. Look at the statement on the screen from the book Christ Object Lessons. It tells us here the gospel invitation is to be given to who? All the world to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. That's what we just read. The last message of warning and mercy is to lighten the whole earth with its glory. Okay, now notice this other statement a little bit further along in that same book. It says, it is the darkness of misapprehension, that's a misunderstanding, of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his what? His character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, that is our time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence 
and saving in his power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world, we shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. That's what we're seeing there in Revelation 14. What does that character look like? Now, I'm talking about this before. You talk about love in this generation, you can get any, any, any number of things. You know, I love my socks, I love pizza, I love Fritos, and I love Jesus. We talk about our God as an awesome God, right? And then we say, oh man, I just got this new pen, it's a, this new gel pen, it's awesome. Now it dawns on me that if the gel pen is in fact awesome, then I probably ought to come up with a different adjective to describe God. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, we say, oh yeah, I love this and I love... We need a revelation of what this character looks like. And we're going to go to the scripture and look at that. Now I'm going to break down God's character into four parts. We're going to look at the, God's love. We're going to look at God's wrath. We're going to look at God's forgiveness from a human perspective, and I need to clarify that, not from a divine. Well, from both. God's forgiveness and God's healing. We're going to look at those four components of God's character. Talk about the love of God first. We're going to use these terms, either conditional or unconditional. When we talk about the love of God, we often say, and I think appropriately, the love of God is unconditional. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word unconditional. It talks about God's love as being everlasting. But the idea of unconditional means there's no condition on God loving you. In other words, God loves you no matter what you do. And I'm going to demonstrate that in some Bible passages in a moment. Your performance doesn't change God's love for you. Now, that's important for us for a couple of reasons. Because as we're going to see as we go on, the fact that God loves you is not going to save you. Because God loves the lost. God's going to love the people in the lake of fire. And I'm going to tell you something that may startle you, but God loves Lucifer because he created him and he loved him. He's his son. doesn't love what he does. But God does not love based on who you are and what you do. God loves because he is love. The Bible tells us that in 1 John 4, 8. I'm not going to bother looking that up. God is love, John tells us. John 3.16. Do you know John 3.16? I'll quote John 3.16. We won't look it up. Most of you are familiar with it. For God so loved the world, you can say with me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal, depending on your translation you memorize in, life. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Now, I want you to understand what that's saying, and to do that, we're going to go to the book of Romans. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, and I really want it to come home to your hearts today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 5, and we're going to start in verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6. The Bible says here, For when we were still without what? Strength. In due time Christ died for who? The ungodly. What price did Jesus pay? How much did he give? Was there anything he held back? No, and who did he give it for? 
What does the Bible say? The ungodly. Now, how many times do you get tempted by the enemy to think that, oh, no, you're ungodly. God's love is not for you. You just did this ungodly thing. You're an ungodly person. Hey, praise the Lord. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, the apostle said. When we were without strength, what does that mean? Listen carefully. This means when we were ungodly and there was nothing in us to do anything different than be ungodly. Christ died for us. I like to say that God always takes the initiative, and I'll challenge you. You study world religions, including false Christianity, and in every false system, the creature has to take the initiative to find God. But in Bible Christianity, God took the initiative to save man when man didn't even want to be saved. While we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse 7. We're not done yet. Verse 7 says, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now let's just get the point here. He's saying if we were enemies when Jesus died for us, nobody came into this world wanting to serve God. And yet, when we were enemies of God, fighting against God, fighting against his will, by our very natures, Christ died for us. Now, if he would do that when we didn't even have a desire to serve him, and this is the point it's making, how much more do you think God is going to be on your side when you do decide to serve him? How many of you have chosen to serve God, and then you make a mistake, and the devil comes to you and says, oh, you blew it now. God didn't want to think. Look what you just did. Look, God knew you would mess up. The same God gave his son Jesus Christ when you didn't want anything to do with him. How much more now that we want to serve him is he going to be for us? And that's the point that the apostle's trying to make, conveying to us that God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. The Bible calls this God's purchased possession. When I was growing up, I used to collect these. Anybody ever collect sports cards? Could have been baseball cards, football cards, basketball cards, hockey cards. They have cards for everything, right? And I was really into it for a while. And you get these, you get these cards, and the, the idea was you buy them in this pack of about, I don't remember how the pet, 15, 20 cards, but I don't, I, I don't remember. And this little hard piece of plastic, pink plastic, they call it gum. Anybody ever? Those who have got the, the sports cards know what I'm talking about. And you would collect the cards, and the goal of the cards was you wanted to get all that season's cards. So you got the 1984 baseball season. I know I'm dating myself, which I did have all of them, by the way. Um, you didn't have all the cards. You get a package of cards, and you get a few packs of cards, and what happens is you get a few doubles or triples of cards, 
Like, I got three Kent to call these with pirates, but I got no Johnny Bench. Well, that's not good. I want Johnny Bench, and I don't need all the Kent to Colby. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get with my friends, and we're going to trade, and I'm going to see if they don't have Kent to Colby, but they have a Johnny Bench, and we swap, and then I'm building my collection, you see. Anyway, I got really into trading the cards, but I outgrew it. But my younger brother, I don't know if I ever officially gave him all my cards. They were, sto they were stored at my mom's house in a box, all my, all my baseball cards, and so my younger brother requisitioned them. And he really got into the baseball card thing. He would go to these card shows, and you'd get these little plastic cases to protect them from dust and smudges, and you'd show them at the shows. And he'd go to these shows, and he'd show me these cards that I bought a pack of for, for you know, 25 cents. And he'd say, hey, see this card here? This card's worth $250. I would always laugh at him. I'm not saying that maybe you, you couldn't. I know people have sold them for that. But I always laughed at him. And I said, brother, that card is not worth, let me tell you when that card is worth $250. Because he'd show me all the different things. He's showing me the cards he has in his collection. I said, that card's going to be worth $250, $250 the moment somebody does what? Yeah, somebody lays down $250 for it. Don't tell me what it's worth. You show me, a, you put that on the, you may have to reduce your price. If you may have $250 on there as everybody comes by your table in your card show until you knock it down to $125 and maybe they'll buy it. But the point that I want to make to you is this. The only real way of determining the value of anything is by the price that someone is willing to pay. Isn't that true? Go to 1 Peter 1 with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want to remind you of the price that was paid for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with what? Corruptible things like Silver or gold? I could use some corruption sometimes, I think, huh? If it's silver and gold. In other words, he's, he's talking about something that we would deem valuable, and he says, these things are worth nothing compared with what? You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Is there a greater price that could be paid? Don't miss this. God paid for you the highest price anybody could pay for anything. Don't ever question your value in God's eyes. And this is all communicating to you and me how much God loves us. The love of God is unconditional. It's not because of who you are, what you do. It's because of who he is. And you are valuable in his sight. And that is a precious truth. This is one of my favorite statements. I say that all the time. You'll get used to it. Of... Uh, Education and education. And notice what it says in education, page 294. The divine teacher bears with the erring. What are the erring? Those are the people who do wrong, right? They're the people who mess up. It bears with the erring through all their perversity. His love, what? Does not grow cold. His efforts to win them do not cease. With outstretched arms, he waits to welcome once or twice. And the erring, the rebellious, and even the apostate. 
His heart is touched with the helplessness of the little child subject to rough usage. The cry of human suffering never reaches his ear in vain. Though all are precious in his sight, the rough, the sullen, the stubborn dispositions draw most heavily upon his sympathy and love, for he traces from cause to effect. That means for some of us we're cantankerous and he knows why. It's the situation we grew up in and God is not unaware of that. Jesus' heart goes out especially to those who struggle the hardest. And while the people around you may not know what you struggle with, Jesus knows what you struggle with. And so he's drawn out especially to those stubborn dispositions. The one who is most easily tempted and most inclined to do wrong, I'll plug it in there, is the special object of his solicitude. There's nothing as powerful in the universe as the love of God. Nothing is powerful. It is unique and different from anything human. So we could ask, then why does God pour his wrath? God loves everybody. Why does God pour out wrath on anybody? That doesn't make any sense. God's love is unconditional. God's wrath is not unconditional. I want you to go to Romans 1 with me. Romans chapter 1. And let's see what the Bible says about the wrath of God. This is a fascinating verse. I'm glad it's in the Scripture. Now, you know, Romans 1.16, we may as well start there. Paul's talking in the very context of the, of the gospel of Christ. In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Right? Who's following along? Did I read that correctly? Let me do it again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and unrighteous men. It's not what it says, is it? It says, the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What's the difference? In one, it's against the person. Let me rephrase it. In one case, his wrath is against the sinner. In the other case, his wrath is against the sin. In the Bible case, in the case that it's written, God's wrath is not against you and me, but the sin in our lives which is why God is working so desperately to separate us from sin, because when God pours out his wrath, finally, it will be poured out on sin. And any sinner who wants to remain attached to it. Now, sometimes we, we, we wrestle with this and we say, well, I don't understand if he loves us so much. Again, why, why the wrath? Think about this for a moment. Now, the wrath, again, is not against the person. It's against the sin. You have a child. You have a friend who has been having a problem with drugs, you've been praying for them, you've been trying to help them, but you go into their house one day and you go into their room and lo and behold, there's your friend died from an overdose with a drug needle laying right there beside them. How do you feel about that needle? How do you feel about the needle? You hate it. Why do you hate it? 
because of what it did to your friend. That's why God has wrath against sin, because of what it does to us. And the greater God's love for us, the greater his wrath against sin. If you don't care about somebody, you don't care if they get hurt. But the more you love them, the more angry you are with the thing that hurts them. God's wrath is not against the sinner, but God's wrath is against the sin. Because it's destroying us. And if he didn't love us so much, he wouldn't have such a perfect hatred for the thing destroying us. Notice this statement from the book Last Day Events, page 240. It says, it is the glory of God to be what? Merciful, full of forbearance, kindness, goodness, and truth. But the justice shown in punishing the sinner is as verily the glory of the Lord as the manifestation of his mercy. Why? Because it's his love that pours out the punishment on wrath. Uh, on, on, the, on the sin, sorry. Look at this statement. God does not stand toward the sinner as what? An executioner of the sentence against transgression. But he leaves the rejecters of mercy to themselves to reap that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields its unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God persistently, what? Resisted, is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. God gives them up. Go to Romans 3 with me and look at, look at what the Apostle Paul says here. Romans 3 and verse 5. Romans 3 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak what? I speak as a man. A lot of, I've heard a lot of Adventists speak as men. Oh, that's not right that God would pour out wrath. I've got some people who just convince themselves he doesn't do it. Make no mistake, the wrath of God is in direct proportion to his love for the sinner, and the wrath is not against the sinner but against the sin. And for that reason, God will destroy sin. God pleads with us in this time of probation to be separated from sin, that we're not destroyed with it. Let's talk about the forgiveness of God for a minute. I'm talking about this from a human perspective. And so I've put forgiveness as unconditional. Unconditional means there's no condition. Everybody gets it. Well, that's not the case with Bible forgiveness, but let me explain what I mean here. Because we mix it up all the time. When we think about forgiveness and when we talk about forgiveness in human terms, John, for example, if, I, if I'm asking John to forgive me, what does it tell you? I've done something wrong to him and what, I'm asking him to do what? what forgive him, what does that mean? What am I asking him to do? Have you ever asked somebody for forgiveness, a human being? What are you asking them to do? What are you asking a human being to do when you ask for forgiveness? To forget it, right? To get over it, to stop being angry, right? When we're asking a human being for forgiveness, we've wronged them, and they're, they're, they're potentially holding something, and we're like, please, just stop being angry, and let's get past this, right? That's a human concept of forgiveness, and we put that on God. 
And I know people have been in the church their whole life, but when they're thinking about forgiveness and asking forgiveness of God, that's what they're thinking. I'm asking God to stop being angry. Folks, God wasn't angry at you. Right? If God's love is unconditional, then how can he be sitting there holding a grudge in heaven? That makes no sense. So I'm talking now here about forgiveness from our human perspective as an attitude. God's willingness to forgive, we might say. His attitude toward us. Does God hold a grudge? No. As far as attitude goes, unconditional. God is not sitting around in heaven holding a grudge. You're like, Lord, would you please forgive me? And he says, you know, I mean, this is the fifth time. This is the 20th time. This is the 100th time. I know, Lord, would you please, you know, I'm going to have to think about this. I'm going to give me a couple days. That's not what's happening, okay? That's a very human concept of forgiveness. Don't put that on God. When we're talking forgiveness, what did Jesus say hanging on the cross? Father what? Forgive them. Was he asking the Father to forgive us, or do we see in the words of Christ a picture of the Father's heart? What did he tell his disciples? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what... They, who's he asking for? The repentant people in the crowd? There were no repentant people in the crowd. He's asking for those people who were saying, crucify him, crucify him. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Why is he doing that? To convey to our minds that God is not holding a grudge against humanity. I've had friends who have this picture of God, and they're like, you know, I've invited him to church. Man, dude, I can't go to church with you. Why not? If I go into church with you, a lightning bolt's going to come out of the sky and put a little black char spot on the floor where I was standing. You ever hear anything like that from somebody, or maybe even think something like that? That's not God. That's not who God is. That's how people think. That's just exactly what the devil wants you to think about God. The Bible says he loves us with an everlasting love. Bible says God is willing to forgive. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see, that, we see that same character repeated, that same forgiveness repeated in his followers. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the first leper who came to Jesus for healing. You've got to understand, leprosy in Bible times, people thought that leprosy would be transferred by touch. And you did not touch, in fact, you would, a leper would be banished to a leper colony. You couldn't come within 20 feet of another person. If you came into a crowd where there were people, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, and advertise your uncleanness so people could go back and kind of part ways for you. Oh, <gasps> comes a leper. And it was in a situation, in, in, the, it, it was in this very situation, there was a leper who heard of Jesus. Nobody had been cleansed from leprosy since back in the Old Testament with Naaman. And this leper heard of Jesus, and he got, in his idea that made, got this idea in his mind that Jesus, Jesus could cleanse him. He knew it in his heart. He knew it. He knew Jesus could cleanse him if, if, if only he would be willing. See, you have to understand something else. Leprosy was often called the finger of God. When a person got leprosy, they were told that it's because God is punishing you because you are so vile, he can't stand you. He put you off in a leper colony. So everything about you told you God would not accept you. But here this man is. He's got no other hope but this man, Jesus. And he makes his way to Jesus, and he forgets. He's so consumed with the idea of getting to Jesus, he forgets to announce himself. 
And he comes in toward Jesus, and the crowd begins to see a leper. <gasps> they all back up, and this man comes close to Jesus, and then Jesus does something amazing. You know, there are times in Scripture, like the man by the pool of Bethesda, and what did Jesus say? Hey, take up your bed and walk. Said the same thing to the paralytic, but in this case with the leper, the Bible says he reached out his hand and he touched it. I got to back up. He touched him after the man said this to Jesus. He came to Jesus, made his way in the crowd parts, and he looked at Jesus. He said, if you're willing, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Have you ever felt that way? I know God can forgive me. I know God can transform me. I know God can change me, but will he? I'm such a sinner. I've done so many terrible things. That's what he was thinking. If you will, you can make me clean. And he reached out his hand. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. And the leprosy was gone. Why is that in the Bible, friends? It's God trying to tell us, I'm willing. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. I'm willing. There's nothing on God's part that's like, no, I won't accept you. I'm willing. Be clean. Notice the statement from Desire of Ages. It says, when we pray for earthly blessings, the answer to our prayer may be delayed, or God may give us something other than we ask. Right? Because sometimes we don't ask for the right thing. But not so when we ask for deliverance from sin. In other words, that's saying, when you ask for deliverance from sin, God will always answer yes. I'm willing, be clean. It is his will to cleanse us from sin, to make us his children, and to enable us to live a holy life. Again, it says, Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. You may say, I am sinful, very sinful. You may be. But the worse you are, what? The more you need Jesus. Folks, that's why he came. What sense does it say? Jesus is the savior of sinners. Uh, I can't ha Jesus doesn't want anything to do with me. I'm a sinner. Uh, he came for sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You say, I'm a sinner? Good news. He came for you. The worse you are, the more you need Jesus. Freely he will pardon all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration. It's amazing, the God that we serve. So we talked about God's love. It's unconditional. God doesn't love you because you did good or you did bad. He loves you because he made you. Because you're, son, you're his son, you're his daughter. He loves you because he is love. God's wrath is conditional. God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You're not one of those people. There are some churches who teach this. Well, you know, God created some people to be saved and some to be lost, and you can't change that. And too bad if you're one of the other guys. No. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will. Who does that include? All of us. God's wrath is conditional. He pours it out on sin. But he said, let me separate you from that sin. Well, I don't know. Is he willing to separate? Yes, he is. From that attitude standpoint, God freely forgives. But there's another part, and this is our last part. There's another part of that 
Bible forgiveness. See, the word forgive is a combination of two words, give and for, and it literally, literally means to give for something. To give for your sin. When I'm asking God to give, forgive my sin, I'm asking Him to give me something in place of my sin. I'm not asking Him to change His mind about me. He already loves me with an everlasting love. I'm asking Him, God, will you give me something in place of my sin? And what God promises to give in place of our sin is the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.4, we're not going to look it up, says, God, uh, says Christ gave Himself for our sins. It's a trade, and it's a good one. It's a trade you want to make. But you see, forgiveness of sin is asking for God to give us something in exchange for our sin. And the story that comes to my mind here is the story by, of the, I just referenced, the man by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5, here's a man who the Bible says was sick for 38 years, 38 years paralyzed. And I've asked this question before, if you think a man was paralyzed 38 years, you think he's been to the doctor yet to just check it out? He's been to every doctor, he's been to every specialist, he's been everywhere he can possibly go. And as a last resort, the pool of Bethesda was a place that legend said if you would take somebody there, every once in a while the water would ripple, and if you get to the water first, only the first one, you could be healed. And so people would bring their sick from all around, and they'd put them by that pool. And they'd actually build shelters, a portico, around the pool of Bethesda for these people who would just languish there. And so you can imagine the scene. You have all these sick people gathered around, laying around, the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the moving of the water. And when the water would move, everybody makes a dive for it. Now, how far do you think a paralytic's going to get? What a miserable situation. And nobody's going to take you to the water because they're trying to get there first. Think about it for a minute. I want you to understand that every one of these stories of healing in the Bible were to convey a greater spiritual truth. The Bible tells us it was the Sabbath day when that man was there at Bethesda. And that Jesus had already gotten a lot of heat from the religious leaders for healing on the Sabbath. So we're told in the book Desire of Ages that Jesus had full intention not to heal anybody that day. Just not to catch flack from the religious leaders. But as he went by Bethesda and he saw that pool and he saw all those people with no hope, and of all of them, that man. And something else that the Bible tells us, after Jesus healed the man, the Bible makes reference to the fact that his sin had something to do with him being there. So I don't know if he was out drinking and driving the camel or something and he had an accident, but somehow or the other, it was his sin that put him there. Now you think about it for a minute. How much can you hope in the mercy of God when your sin has put you in the condition you're in? You deserve it. And this was in that man's mind. 38 years, and the religious leaders had told him that. That was the idea. All suffering was said to be a result of sin anyway. And so this man is sitting there looking at that pool of Bethesda, and Jesus comes by, and he sees him there. And he just can't go. 
He just can't go by without healing. His heart is moved with compassion. He goes up to the man, and he looks at him, and he asks him. He bends over him, and he asks him, Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made whole? Now, that seems like a silly question to ask a man who's been there for 38 years. He's obviously by the pool, but that's done. Why else would he be there? Or was it a silly question? Let's recap some things. The love of God is unconditional. God wants all to save, all to be saved and none to come to destruction, right? God's wrath is conditional. He doesn't want to destroy. He doesn't want any to perish. God has no attitude holding him back from forgiving. So why isn't everybody saved? Why does the Bible say that broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life? Same reason that he asked that man, do you want to be made whole? Fact of the matter is, a lot of us like the sin we're wallowing in. Jesus is not going to force us to be saved. Jesus is not going to force us to follow him. So he asks the question, just like that man by the pool of Bethesda, he asks you and me today, do you want to be made whole? Everything else we've looked at shows God more than willing to save us, but now here it hinges on whether we want to be saved or not. That's what it comes down to. And friends, we can talk about the goodness of God all day long. But at the end of the day, with all God's love, there are going to be people in the lake of fire. Not because God wasn't good, not because God didn't love, not because God wanted to destroy them, but because they would not choose to be saved while they had time. How sad. is conditional whether or not we say yes to him whether or not we choose to be healed gospel truth notice this statement gospel truth ruins if it does not say let ministers and people remember that gospel truth ruins that it does not save the soul that refuses to listen to the invitations of mercy from day to day can soon listen to the most urgent appeals without motion stirring his soul and that's not just the old ones here. You young people sit and listen to appeals and don't respond to appeals, and you know what happens? The next time you can hardly hear it. Daily the Lord is pleading, but nobody is going to perish who didn't get opportunity. Will you be made whole, Jesus says. In the book Steps to Christ, it tells us this, it is not enough to perceive the loving kindness of God to see the benevolence, the fatherly tenderness of his character. I've had people say, we just need to talk about the love of God, and that's just going to do it, and people are going to be saved. We talk about his goodness. Folks, he's always been good, and we need to know about his goodness. But it's not enough to perceive it. What's your response to it? It is not enough to discern the wisdom and justice of his law to see that it is founded upon the eternal principle of love. Paul the Apostle saw all this when he exclaimed, I consent to the law that it is good, but he added in the bitterness of his soul anguish and despair, I am carnal soul under sin. The book Steps to Christ says, he longed for the purity, the righteousness, to which itself he was powerless to attain. 
Jesus invites us to receive that righteousness. Last thing I want to look at right here from Steps of Christ 47. Many, and it's a sad word, isn't it? Many will be lost while hoping and desiring to be Christians. For all God's goodness, they're going to be lost. They do not come to the point of what? Yielding will to God. And we have fancy ways of getting around it and explaining why we don't. But the bottom line is they don't come to the point of yielding the will to God. Do not now what? Choose to be Christians. Friends, today Jesus is appealing to you and me. We serve an awesome God. We serve an amazing God. We serve a God who loves like no other. We serve a God who has patience like no other. We serve a God who has gone further than anybody could conceivably imagine so that we can have a place in his kingdom. And that God is here today, and he's asking you and me, after we've seen his unconditional love, after we've been reminded that his wrath is against the sin, not the sinner, after we have been reminded that God doesn't hold anything against you, Friends, if we are not feeling accepted with God, it's not because he's holding back, it's because we're holding back. And the Lord Jesus bends over us today. And he says, do you want to be made whole? And we're looking at that habit sitting beside us and saying, you know, I'm not sure, Jesus. That's what it comes down to. We say, well, i got these sins and I'm not, hey, Jesus can help you with that. He didn't ask you, Jesus didn't ask us to fix everything. He didn't bend over the man by the pool of Bethesda and say, hey, look, if you, can, if you can get up on your feet, I can help you walk. He just asked a simple question, do you want to be made whole? What's your answer to him today, brothers and sisters? What's your answer to him today? You're not going to get a clearer opportunity. You're not going to get a brighter opportunity somewhere down the road. Today, now, while it is called today, the Spirit of God speaks and invites you to behold your God. Will you be made whole? Is that your desire today? To say, Jesus, I want to be made whole. Anything in my life that is between me and you, oh Lord, remove it. I see that you are totally on my side. Today I need to choose to be on your side. Is that your choice today? I want you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, as we bow our heads today, I want to appeal again. As the Lord is speaking to your heart today, and he's asking you if you want to be made whole, you know whether your heart's right with him or not. His spirit has communicated what may be between you and him. And today, if your desire is to receive that wholeness, that healing from Jesus. I want to invite you to raise your hands with me as we pray. Father in heaven, Father, we don't deserve salvation. We'll never be good enough for salvation. And I praise your name that we don't have to be. That's why you sent Jesus. And in Jesus, you have demonstrated to us an everlasting love. Father, please help us to realize 
the peril in not receiving that love today. Your voice comes to us as the man by the pool of Bethesda, and it asks us if we want to be made whole. You have seen our response here today. Lord, there are some sitting here today who haven't responded. I pray you would stir their hearts. Father, we don't even know we have tomorrow. And as we're sitting here on your Sabbath day and hearing the word, your appeal to us, oh Lord, soften our hearts and help us to give all to you. We thank you for the abundance of love that was shown us and demonstrated to us in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for our sins. Help us now to give ourselves to you. For we ask and pray it in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.